0: Hi guys, are you doing well? Okay, good. Um, So it is Father's Day, in case you didn't pick up on that, by the fact that we keep wishing you a happy Father's Day and showed the video about Father's Day, but just one one more comment on that before we let the whole Father's Day thing go for a little while, and that is this. Um, You know, every one of us uh, has a different father experience. Some of us are fathers. Some of us grew up with great fathers, some of us grew up with not so great fathers, some of us grew up without fathers. So everybody has a whole different experience on this fatherhood thing. Isn't it awesome to know that our heavenly father is perfect in every way, that he is the perfect father? The scripture says that he is the father to the fatherless, that he is the husband to the widow, that he is the one who who, uh, constantly provides all of those things that our earthly father's. Um, maybe try and sometimes fail to provide. So what an awesome thing it is um, to be able to know that every day is Father's Day because we have such a great and awesome God. Amen? Um, so we've been talking in the book of Ephesians now for, for several months, and uh, if you uh, brought your Bible, you're going to want to open to the book of Ephesians. We're going to get there in just a couple of minutes, so go ahead and get there and get ready in your New Testament, the book of Ephesians, um, and we're going to be in chapter 4, but um, we've been seeing in the book of Ephesians this idea that God has given us new birth. Every one of us who is a follower of Jesus Christ has received new birth in Christ. And because we have that new birth, we are new people, right? Now, here's the thing. It's reasonable to expect, isn't it, that a new person would live a new life? Isn't it reasonable to expect that If you got a brand new life, it would be lived differently than the one that you had been living before. And and so that's the thing about the book of Ephesians. He, He gives us this whole beautiful theological treatment of what it is to receive new life in Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you don't really understand that internally, you've never really experienced what it is to have that new life in Jesus Christ, I am so glad you're here because... The gospel is the only answer to all of the stuff that is driving us crazy in life. And so you need to, you need to um, seek Christ. You need to consider the claims of the gospel. But the, the truth of the matter is that for most of us who are here, we have, we're here because we're worshipers of God. We're here because we've already decided that He's going to be central in our lives. We're here because we have been adopted as sons and daughters, just as we sang in the song, and just as we saw in the first um, chapter of Ephesians. We're here because we have that new life. But the interesting thing is that there are so many people who claim the the uh, to be a part of the family of God and name the name of Jesus Christ, but if you watch the way they live their lives, you don't see new life. That's troubling because talk is cheap, isn't it? Um, and, And all of us know this from our own experience with our own lives and our own failures, and all of us know this for the other people around us who have failed us because we're all in the same boat that way. All of us have been hurt. All of us have been let down. All of us have had people that we counted on who didn't come through for us, right? And we all know what that's like. And we know what it's like to also hear somebody say, listen, I'm really sorry, I'll never do that again, only to see them do it again. And we know what it's like to have someone who is not faithful and have to live with that. That's why I wanted to point out the truth about Father's Day because our heavenly Father is always faithful, right? So we've seen some people who have let us down and we have been the people who have let people down, right? Talk is cheap. I don't know if any of you have been watching this, but yeah, for whatever reason, I'm I'm interested. I've been watching this, uh, the O.J. Simpson um, documentary that's been on. There was a mini-series like a month or two ago, and now a documentary, because this is like the 20th anniversary or something of when all of that went down. And and I was watching the whole thing, and, and this one, unlike the miniseries, really digs into his life more, and you see the stuff that leads up to what happened. And one of the things that I noticed about it is that when that terrible night happened and people were murdered, that was not the beginning of the situation. OJ had been a batterer. He had always been a batterer. He had he had mistreated women his entire life, and his wife, Nicole, he had particularly mistreated. He had beaten her on numerous occasions. The police were regularly at their house because of 911 calls. She was hospitalized. She has pictures of her face all swollen up and bruised and broken and all of that kind of stuff. And, but the thing that they helped you to see in this documentary is just how charming this guy was so that after all of the craziness wore down and all the chaos wore down and all of that, he would put on this, I'm so sorry, it will never happen again, I've changed, it will never happen again, just trust me, just take me back, and she would keep taking him back and it would happen again because talk is cheap. And there's a lot of people who say, oh, I'm changed. I'll never be the same. But one of the things we have to understand is that in the the Bible, and especially in the book of Ephesians, where it talks about this new birth, we're not talking about the ability of God to change your life. We're talking about the ability of God to transform your life. So change and transformation are not the same thing. I changed my shirt Transformation is when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. That's a whole different level, isn't it? And, and when God has his way with us, there's not just a change. There's not just a, we don't just sort of change our religious um, description of ourselves. We don't just change our Sunday morning schedule. We don't just change maybe our language or, or the kind of music that we listen to or something like that. But what God wants to do is have access to our whole lives so that when we lay our lives down at the altar, He transforms us. So we're actually given new lives. So talk is cheap. And that's the thing that that we're going to keep seeing in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 because as I've told you again and again, now that we've turned the corner into the practical application side of this book, He is going to keep getting up in our business. He is going to keep saying, no, no, no. I don't want you to just nod your head and say amen to the preacher. I want you to actually go home and live differently. And if you don't, don't talk to me about a transformed life. And it's, it's confrontational. It's right up in your face and you can't get away from it. And Jesus actually has the audacity to say to us, I will lay down my life for you, but I expect your life in exchange. I want you to live for me. I will empower you to live for me, but I expect you to live for me. And so he expects us to be transformed. Now, if you're in Ephesians, go to chapter 2. I know we're going to be in chapter 4 today, but let's just go back for a moment because I want us to get the foundation of this in chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, not sick, not tired, dead and in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So he's saying there is a a group of people, a category of people who are spiritually dead. And you can tell that they're spiritually dead, at least in part, by the way that they walk. He uses this metaphor of a walk, and he says, the way that you practically live your life, the way that you walk, is indicative of what's true on the inside of you. And so you used to walk in the ways of sin and disobedience. Verse 3 Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So he's warning us as Christians not to start looking down on people who don't yet know Christ because we were there once and we remember what it's like to not have any spiritual life but to try to make something of the life that you have and what an uphill battle is and what an impossible fight it is. And he says, you were just like them. Verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That, my friends, is new life. Not fixed up life. Not remodeled life. Not reformed life. New life. That's why the term um, that Jesus used in John chapter 3 is so apropos. That you must be born again. We literally must be born again. Again, you go, well, not literally, that's just dysmorphic. No, no, literally. Literally, it says, you had no spiritual life until you're born again. You must receive new life. So when there is new life, that's transformation. And so he's holding the bar up where it belongs, and he's saying, Don't talk to me about little bits of change in your life, and don't talk to me about how you're going to do better, and don't talk to me about how you have power and all that kind of stuff. Until you lay your life down at the foot of the cross and receive the transforming work of Jesus Christ, you're never going to experience life the way it was designed to be experienced. So you're literally born again, and it's instantaneous, but it doesn't stop there. Salvation is the new birth. It's the new life. Think of it this way: um, A baby is born. You get the announcement, right? Eight pounds, seven ounces, 19 inches. Everybody's healthy. There's a little picture of mom and the baby in the hospital and all that, and everybody rejoices together and it gets put up on Facebook, and everybody's happy, right? Now, when you go and see that little child, just just, you know, helpless, infant, tiny little baby can't do anything for himself. You think, you, you think nothing of it. You go, wow, that's just as it should be. But now picture that same person, 40 years later, just as helpless, just as dependent upon everybody else, just as weak, only able to lay there and cry until somebody does something for him. You see that and you go, well, that's not cool, right? I mean, a, a child is one thing, but you look at an adult who still lives like a child, that's pathetic, right? That's just hopeless. That's, that's, that's terrible. And yet some of us in our spiritual lives have sort of accepted the idea that the point is to be born. And then leave it at that. God says, no, no, you're born into something. You're intended to grow up. He expects you to become mature and he empowers you to become mature. Skip down to verse 8, still in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So he brings together this marriage of grace that saves us and grace that gives us that life. And in that grace, he expects us to walk there's actual change that he expects to take place in our lives. Not something he's asking of us, something he's granted to us by grace. But to sit there and continue crying like a little helpless baby instead of being willing to take steps and walk is pathetic. Once you have the gift of new life, you have to choose to walk in it. Listen to how Paul explained to the Philippians. If you're in Ephesians, just turn the page like two or three times. You get to Philippians chapter 2. And I want you to join me in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Listen to how Paul explains it to the Philippians. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, we have been talking for months about About God's grace for salvation. We've said that everyone's salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is nothing that you bring to the table. It is not your works that save you. If it was dependent upon our works to save us, all of us would be hopeless. Amen? It's all by grace. And yet, the same Paul who wrote that in Ephesians chapter 2 writes in Philippians chapter 2 that we are to work out our salvation. What in the heck is that? Work out your salvation? What about grace? What about this is something only God can do? Why am I being told to work out my salvation? And not only am I told to work out my salvation, but how am I told to work it out? With fear and trembling. I'm actually supposed to take this so seriously, this working out of my salvation, that the thought of not taking it seriously should make me afraid. With fear and trembling, work out my salvation. What does that mean? Well, don't forget verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, that's the grace, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. That's the transformation. God gives us the power by His grace to will, that is to actually want the right things, and to work, to actually do the right things. For his good pleasure. God's pleasure is the definition of my success. If if God is pleased with me, I'm successful. This is why in the first three chapters of uh, Ephesians, he's explaining this salvation by grace, salvation by grace, salvation by grace. And then he turns the corner in chapter 4 and he goes, Now, it is about your choices, it is about your attitudes, and it is about your actions. You have to take some responsibility, Christian. That's what he says. Chapter 4, verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Verse 3 talks about our diligence and our effort. Verse 12 tells us that we're called to be ministers, not spectators. Every one of us called to be a minister. Verse 15 talks about growing up as evidenced by speaking the truth and loving people. Verse 17 talks about the, the way that we are walking. Verse 22 tells us lay aside the old way of life. Verse 23 tells us, change your mind, think differently. Verse 24 tells us, put on the new man. Lay off, lay aside the old man, put on the new man. We have to make choices to live differently. So make no mistake, the Christian life is a transformed life. It happens from the inside, but it always works its way out. And Paul continues to unpack this for us back in Ephesians chapter 4. Go to Ephesians 4 verse 25 let's look how this works itself out. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So this putting off and putting on is going to get very practical for us now. He tells us what to lay aside. And he begins by telling us, lay aside falsehood. And the obvious, obvious, most um, simple explanation of what that means is, stop lying, Lay aside falsehood. Now, I know we all sit here and we think, oh, stop lying. I'm not a liar. Yes, you are. (laughs) We all struggle with dishonesty. We all have a problem with this. We all want to present ourselves in a certain way that isn't true. We all want to uh, reflect a certain thing about our character that isn't true. We want to hide things about ourselves that are true. Sometimes uh, we would just tell outright lies. Lying is just a part of what it is to be struggling with the flesh, and all of us have a problem at one level or another with lying. And so, the simplest application of this is, hey, stop lying. You go, no, no, pastor, seriously, that's not a problem for me. Apparently, these people, but not me, I don't really have a problem with that. Really? How are your taxes? Reporting everything? How about your time card at work? Are you given an honest eight hours work for an honest eight hours of pay? Or are there those times when the boss is not there and maybe played a little bit of video games on your computer when you should have been doing something else? You know? Are there those times when you try to um, embellish your stories a little bit so that people think you're more impressive than you are? We struggle with this, and God says, listen, stop it, lay it aside. And every one of us has got to look at God and go, okay, I'm going to work on this. Lay aside falsehood. But integrity is probably the most scarce resource in North America today. People who actually are who they say they are. People who actually keep their word all the time. Think about this. Do you ever have a mechanic lie to you? Right? I'm sorry if you're a mechanic. I'm not backing on you. Pastors are less respected than mechanics, so don't worry about it. But I, I actually went from being a used car salesman to being a pastor, and in many people's eyes, that dropped me down a notch because of televangelists. So you look at the, you look at the um, polls that are taken, and, and televangelists are below almost everybody on the who do you trust list. But let's get back to mechanics, because I'd rather pick on them. So let's, let's say you go to a mechanic... And you go in to get your oil changed, and he calls you up, and he says, listen, I have a list of 16 other things that you would not possibly know anything about that need to be fixed, and it's going to be 1100 bucks." Now, how many of you just go, oh, okay, feel free, let me give you my credit card number? No, you don't, because you assume that you're probably being lied to. You assume that there's probably some shenanigans going on there. The same when you go to buy something and a salesman's telling you all this stuff, you assume you're not being told the whole story. We, we are so used to living in a culture of dishonesty that integrity really stands out. You show me a mechanic who you bring your car in and go, I'm pretty sure I need brakes. And he looks at it and calls you up and says, you know what, it turned out there was just a little bit of... Um, a little bit of gloss on the lining of your brakes. Your brakes are good for at least another year. Don't sweat it. You show me a mechanic who does that, and I will show you a mechanic I will recommend to all my friends. Amen? Is that what we do? We find somebody who has unusual integrity. We're impressed. We're astonished. We're surprised. Because we live in a society where dishonesty and a lack of integrity are normal. People lie all the time, and we know it. Someone who consistently tells the truth is a very rare find. One of the clearest marks of immaturity is dishonesty. Let me show you what I mean. Watch the screen. If you, couldn't, if you couldn't understand her very eloquent speech, what she was saying, she's got Nutella all over her face, and her mom says, did you get into the Nutella? And the answer is no, with a big, beautiful smile. How can you not trust that face, right? Except there's Nutella all over it. <laughs> That's how you don't trust that face, right? And she, when you ask her, she lies louder, right? No, no, shakes her head. I did not. Oh, really? What were you doing? I was washing the dishes. Wow. Amazing. Never occurs to her that there's Nutella all over my face and the dishes are still dirty and my mom can see this. Because lying just comes naturally to us. It is our nature that we're born in sin and we lie. And so he says, listen, when you're reborn, you have a new nature. and Lying has nothing to do with that. So it's one thing when you see this adorable little kid talking about whether or not she got into the Nutella. It's another thing, though, when you see people in business who are lying consistently. When you see people in marriage who are not taking their vows seriously. When you see people uh, in education who are... Um, cheating on tests and and plagiarizing their papers. And it's just normal. God says it's time to grow up. If you're a Christian, you're supposed to be the exception. You're supposed to be the light that stands out in the darkness. You're supposed to be the one who shocks people with your integrity. As you grow up, you're supposed to look like a grown-up. In our culture, lying is just part of what people think it takes to get ahead. It's part of how you, how you define being successful. We've got to remember what the Scripture says. Success is being pleasing to God. If success is being pleasing to God, then there's no way to be successful by lying because we're told again and again in Scripture not to lie. Now listen, I, those of you who are like, more spiritual than Jesus, just settle down for a second, okay? Because I don't want you to get this idea that says, you know, oh, there's never, we have to, whatever thought is in my head needs to come out of my mouth, right? You ever, you ever go back to the baby illustration? You ever go, the baby's born, you go to the hospital to visit, the, you see this baby for the first time, and you look down, and your first thought is, oh, that's an ugly kid, Right? you say that? No, of course not, right? Paul is not saying, listen, whatever stupid thought is in your head needs to come out of your mouth. He's talking about integrity. He's talking about laying aside falsehood and living in honesty. People without Christ are referred to in Scripture as children of the devil who is the father of lies, On the other hand, believers have been born again, adopted into the family of God who is the truth, and we ought to reflect our father. Those who have been born again need to reflect their father's character. And so we need to choose truth over lying as a way of life. But the command here goes beyond that because it's not just talking about whether you're telling lies. It's talking about laying aside falsehood. And you'll remember if you've been here the last few weeks that he's been talking about the value of the truth as opposed to the false teaching that is out there. So the context of the passage is falsehood in terms of the larger body of truth. What is true? And, and he's saying, listen, if you're a believer and you're growing in your maturity, you need to be growing in your understanding of the truth of God's Word. You need to be understanding, uh, growing in your understanding of the gospel. You need to recognize falsehood when you hear it. And you need to stand against it, and you need to speak truth. Go back in uh, chapter 4 to verse 18. He's talking about unbelievers, and he says, they're darkened in their understanding. That's a mind problem. Excluded from the life of God because of ignorance. That's a mind problem. Because of the hardness of their heart. And he goes on and talks about their mind problems. And basically, he's saying, they don't understand truth. They're not living in the truth. But he gives us a contrast, verse 22. Talking to those who are Christians, he says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. The old self, characterized by deceit, lay it aside, and that you be renewed in your mind. You begin to think accurately, laying aside falsehood to live a life that is characterized by truth. As Christians, we need to know the truth. We need to be able to share the truth with others. We need to recognize falsehood when we hear it. Because the only antidote to falsehood is truth. Amen? That's it. Lost people are not able to live in the truth, but Jesus changes everything. That's why we don't talk about a reformed life. We talk about being born again. And here's the thing. Unfortunately, too many Christians just don't take this seriously. They don't make the effort to learn the truth. They don't make the effort to speak the truth. They don't make the effort to clean up their own integrity issues. But remember what Paul said in verse 20 you did not learn Christ in this way. You didn't learn Christ in this way. God has a high standard for his children. And again, you know, I'll just keep reminding you every Sunday, if you keep coming back while I'm preaching through Ephesians, God is going to keep getting uh, uncomfortably close to you, right up in your face, and He is going to insist on some actual transforming things to take place in your life. And He's doing that again here. But there's more. For some of us, this part is even harder. Look at verse 25. Therefore, laying aside all falsehoods, speak the truth, each one of you, to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. But then it gets to this, verse 26. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. What in the world does it mean to be angry and not sin? Just ask yourself for a second. When was the last time you were really angry and didn't sin, either in your thoughts or your actions as a result? It is really unusual that a person is really angry and doesn't sin. But it says, be angry and yet do not sin. Another translation says, in your anger, do not sin. Another one says, when you are angry, do not sin. The implication being that anger is common to man. All of us get angry from time to time, amen? Amen? We all get angry from time to time. It's almost as if anger is unavoidable, but somehow... When we are angry, we are not supposed to sin. Now, that's where it gets difficult. Because if the verse just said, be angry, period, a lot of us would go, amen. A lot of us would be patting ourselves on the back all the time. Oh, you should have seen me today on the 605. I was obeying the scripture. Right? It says right there, be angry. And man, was I angry. Right? And, And unfortunately... It doesn't say be angry, period. It says be angry, and yet, do not sin. It's almost as if God thinks that's possible. It's almost as if God is confused into thinking that it is possible to be angry and not fly off the handle and be sorry for what you did next. And if that's true, I want to know more about it. We would be so proud of our obedience if it just said be angry. But it says, "Be angry and don't sin." Actually, it's a paraphrase—a paraphrase of Psalm 4:4. 4, 4. Um, let me just read it to you real quick. You can mark this down in your notes, but you don't have to turn there. Let me just read you Psalm chapter four, verse four: "Tremble and do not sin. Meditate on your heart upon your in your heart upon your bed and be still. Tremble and do not sin." And if you look up the Hebrew word that is translated "tremble," there it means to tremble with anger. He's saying, have you ever been so angry that you're shaking? Like your your bald head turns red? You ever (laughs) had that happen? Not most of you? Okay. That happens to me. To be so angry that you're clenching your jaw, or worse yet, opening your mouth, right? You're shaking with anger. We're talking about extreme anger. And he says, listen... When you're trembling with anger, do not sin. I am really interested in knowing how you do that. How about you? There are moments when we're trembling with anger and we usually blow it. That's usually when we fly off the handle. It's usually when we say or do something that we're going to regret. Ask yourself this. When was the last time you were so angry you were trembling and you were really happy about what you did after that? Right? Oh, I'm so glad I got mad and got everything off my chest and told everyone in my family that I hate their guts and never want to see them again. So glad I said that. No. See, that kind of outburst is a sign of immaturity. When a person becomes angry and then they lose it, that's a sign of immaturity. That's what we expect. Watch this. if you couldn't understand her, she wants to drive. <laughs> She's strapped into her child seat. Thank God she can't get out. And she has lost it because the, her mother, the Wicked Witch of the West, will not allow her to drive. Wow. You see that and you go, oh, that's cute. She's probably three. That's adorable, right? How many of us end up throwing tantrums because God insists on driving and we want to drive. And God says, no, no, trust me, you don't want to drive. Yes, I do. No, no, you don't know how to drive. Yes, I do. We begin to turn red and we begin to throw our fits and we begin to tell God where to get off and, and we insist on driving. See, When you're young and immature, that sort of thing is understandable. It's a part of growing up. But when you've grown and you're still throwing tantrums every time you don't get what you want, every time you get angry, that's a bad sign. Guys, anger is an emotion. We can't always control whether we're going to be angry. In fact, a lot of people don't realize this. Jesus got angry. Multiple times in Scripture, we see Jesus angry. Probably most of us remember the the most obvious times, the two times in his life where he went into the temple court at Passover, and they had all the animals in there and the money changers, and they're ripping people off. And what does Jesus do? He goes through the place like a whirlwind, turns the tables over, and physically removes everyone from there. In one of those instances, he picks up a cord and makes a whip out of it and starts swinging it. And people are running in every direction going, man, what is this guy's problem? And he cleans out the entire temple court all by himself. Now, you may call that not anger, but I don't know what you're going to call it. That's anger. And you go, no, pastor, be careful. We're talking about Jesus. Jesus never sinned, so Jesus couldn't have been angry. Really? Go to Mark chapter 3. I don't know why you people argue with me. (laughs) Go to Mark chapter 3 and verse 1. Mark 3, 1. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. This happened to Jesus all the time, right? It's the Sabbath. Healing is considered work. You're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. And so they're watching to see if he'll heal this guy. He said to the man with a withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. Now look at verse 5. After looking around at them, the spiritual leaders, after looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. It says in so many words, he looked at them with anger. Don't tell me Jesus never got angry. The interesting thing is he never sinned. So it must be possible to be angry and not sin. So let's ask a couple of questions about Jesus' anger. First one is this, what made him angry? I think one of the biggest things that separates Jesus from us on this subject is what makes him angry compared to what makes me angry. Because what makes me angry is generally when someone messes with me. You do something to make my life less comfortable. You take something away from me. You disrespect me. You dishonor me. I'm going to get mad, and we're going to have a problem. But you never see Jesus angry on his own behalf. Was it when someone was unkind to him that Jesus got angry? No. Was it when someone mistreated him that Jesus got angry? No. All you have to do is remember Jesus hanging bloody on the cross, right? They've beaten him. They've scourged him. They've nailed him to a cross. They're spitting at him and mocking him and throwing things at him. And what is his response in that moment to pray for them? You don't see Jesus angry on his own behalf. The thing that made Jesus angry is always the same, sin. It was out of his anger about sin that he came to save us in the first place. He looked at the hardness of their hearts, these men who were supposed to be the leaders, the spiritual leaders of Israel, and he was brokenhearted because of the hardness of their hearts, and he was angry because of that sin. The only thing I can find in Scripture that made Jesus angry is sin. So if you're going to get angry, get angry about sin. That's what should be meant by that overused phrase, uh, love the sinner, hate the sin, By the way, ask yourself this question. When you get angry about sin, is it your sin or somebody else's? And the church really needs to think about this these days. I mean, just every day in the news, oh my goodness, you guys. These videos that keep popping up on social media in the aftermath of the shooting in Florida, where these people in the name of Jesus are pounding their fist, And talking about how this is a good thing and God hates these people and yada, yada, yada. See, that's the reputation that is spreading for the church. That's what we need to be fighting against through our own character of integrity. We need to love people and hate sin. We need to hate the sin that is in our own lives and deal with that so that we can stand to take the It's back out of somebody else's eye. (coughs) Jesus hated sin and loved sinners. Second thing, what did he do with his anger? What did Jesus do with his anger? When he got angry, how did he respond? Did he give in to the temptation to sin? Was it when he was angry at sin? Did he say, "You know what? I am so angry at sin. I think I'll sin." No, it makes absolutely no sense. And yet that's what we see many people who name the name of Christ doing all the time. Instead, he did what was best in every situation according to the need of the moment. He was angry at these men's sin who were misleading Israel, and then he turned and healed the withered hand of this young man. He always did what was appropriate in light of his anger or in spite of his anger. And I have known too many so-called Christians who are motivated by hatred of people and love for sin in their own lives. And that has to change. And look at the the last part. If you go back to Ephesians, um, and Ephesians chapter 4, look at the second half of verse 26 as it leads into verse 27. It says, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Listen. When we hold on to anger it becomes bitterness always. And bitterness destroys us from the inside out. When we hold on to anger, it becomes bitterness. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Guys, this would just be a great habit to get into. Before your head hits the pillow every night, unload some things at the foot of the cross. You're You're going to bed all uptight and trembling with your anger. Can't sleep because of your anger. Upset stomach because of your anger. Clenching your jaw because of your anger. How about if you say, Lord, this should be more important to you than it is to me. I'm going to lay it at your feet because you have all the power anyway. My anger is accomplishing nothing. You begin to lay down your anger and refuse to to water the plants of bitterness and create a situation where life just gets worse. Our anger should drive us to pray for people, It should drive us to help people who are caught up in sin. It should drive us to stand against injustice, but when it becomes bitterness, it just destroys. See, if you're holding on to your anger, you, if you have anger and you're not going to respond correctly, you can either hold on to it, let it become bitterness, or you can act out of your anger, let it control you, and have an outburst. Either way, the devil's in control. And that's why he says in verse 27, don't give the devil an opportunity. If you hang on to your anger, if you let your anger rule you, you're giving the devil an opportunity. Anger is an emotion. It's natural. But like every emotion, it makes a great servant, but a terrible master. We have to understand this about our emotions. They make great servants. We are who we are because we're emotional people. But when anyone or anything other than Jesus is ruling me even for a moment, that's the sin of idolatry. So here's the bottom line. Whether we're talking about truth or we're talking about anger, we're called to walk like grown-ups. We're going to have to take responsibility. And you know what? You keep hearing sermons like this. You go, man, this is hard. Every time I come on Sunday, he's telling me one more thing I got to fix. I better change this. And he's not just talking about superficial things, going right to the heart. And he's saying, I need to be changed on the inside. I'm sick of this. This is hard. You know what? It is hard. It is hard to be transformed. It's not easy to walk like a grown-up. But here's the deal. The world has had more than its share of fools who are controlled by their anger and falsehood. Isn't it time that God's church stands up and says, We're going to stand on integrity and we are not going to let our anger cause us to sin? Jesus has done so much for us, but walking like a grown up, that's up to us. We have to do it. He gives us the power, He gives us the strength. He gives us a direction, but we have to take the steps. And so the question as I close is, are you up for that challenge? Because here's the thing. In every one of our lives, there's a bunch of stuff that needs to get changed. But what's the old saying? A journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. And so I want to just challenge you right here, right now, today, to think about this. In these areas of your life, your integrity, in this area of your anger and what it leads you to, is there a step you need to take? Is there there someone that you need to forgive you've been holding on to anger? Or is there someone you need to seek forgiveness from and have a relationship restored and you need to just humble yourself and make it right? Is is there something that uh, lacks integrity in your life about your business dealings, about your relationships, about the, the words that come out of your mouth? What do you need to do to change that? Some of us have just decided, well, in my business, if you don't lie, you don't make it. Are you willing to be in another business in order to be pleasing to God? Are you willing to stand out in your business as the one person who has integrity and maybe people will flock to you because of that? Are we willing to trust God? Are we willing to walk like a grown-up? Whatever it is that you need to do to walk like a grown-up, let me encourage you, take the first step. Talk to God about it and begin to live differently.